world's becoming a dangerous place for us women. Lipstick Bodyguard looks just like an innocent little lipstick, but it'll instantly drop any attacker to his knees so you can get away unharmed. Lipstick Bodyguard, fear no evil. Get yours today, only at LipstickBodyguard.com. This week on Parents Are Hard to Raise. Diane talks with Dr. Erin Heiss of the Huron-Perth Healthcare Alliance in Ontario, Canada about what they are doing to connect the dots for family caregivers. Join 180 million monthly subscribers who can now listen to Parents Are Hard to Raise on Spotify. are hard to raise, helping families grow older together without losing their minds. I'm elder care expert Diane Berardi. When a family member falls ill, family caregivers come head on with many challenges and obstacles while still trying to care for their loved ones. Navigating a complex system of healthcare providers and organizations that lack connectivity and even decent communication can be maddening for caregivers, as many of us know firsthand. My guest this week is part of a team that's trying hard to change all that. Dr. Erin Heiss has been a physician with the Star Family Health Team in Stratford, Ontario since 2008. She did her medical training at the University of Western Ontario and has focused her practice on family medicine ever since. Her decision to join the Connecting the Dots team came from a strong personal desire to better recognize and help the amazing family caregivers who are an integral part of the healthcare system and our communities. And today, like many parents, she spends the majority of her time trying to balance work, family, and taxiing kids around town. Dr. Erin Heiss, welcome to Parents Are Hard to Raise. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, we're so happy that you're here, and it really warms my heart that we're all focusing on the caregiver, you know, and recognizing the caregiver and that they have a voice. So how did you as a physician, get involved with the Change Foundation and the Connecting the Dots project? Well, it's a bit of an interesting story, so bear with me. No, that's um, great. We so love stories. I, <laughs> oh, great. I'm good at telling stories, so this is excellent. Um, so I graduated from residency in 2008, and I already had one child. I had a child during residency, and I was super keen. So I started my practice in, you know, around Stratford, Ontario, and I was asked, oh, will you be on this committee? Will you be this? Will you lead this project? And I kept saying yes. Uh because I I thought oh yeah I'm so interested in that I'm so interested in that and that's what people why people go into family medicine right we're kind of interested in a bit of everything yes um but I had a great support system so I felt okay with saying yes and yes and yes and fast forward about five or six years and I had a lot of meetings because over the six years you know they accumulate all these committees and projects and things 
But then my support system started to fade a little bit, uh. and I found it really hard to continue with that level of commitment. So my father-in-law, he got diagnosed with esophageal cancer and passed oh. away 16 weeks later. Oh, I'm sorry um, to hear that. Yeah, and then my brother-in-law had a first-episode psychosis right around the same time. My nanny moved back to BC, and my husband quit his job and started his own business. So Whoa. all of a sudden what I could manage before I really couldn't so I stepped back from everything I stepped back from all the committees all the meetings all the leadership positions I had and and just to make things work to focus on the family and my practice and everything so then fast forward another couple of years and I get an email from our executive director Monique Hancock about attending a lunch session at the hospital for a project that our family health team's involved in called connecting the dots and Monique doesn't ask a lot of me, which is awesome. <laughs> um, so I always try to, when she does ask, I always really try hard to respect that and to attend whatever, sure. you know, what she wants me to. <laughs> and so I, I booted over to the hospital after my last patient of the morning. And I thought I was just going to sort of sit there for 45 minutes and maybe let my mind wander a bit. Um, but that was not the case. The minute they started the presentation, I I hadn't felt excited like that for years. Wow. And I was like okay so I I really paid attention I loved the slides like it was just such clear crisp slides with not really medical jargon and I I get a bit tired of you know I I only use the big long words when I'm talking to specialists (laughs) or another colleague I don't like to always use like words that nobody understands so I thought the presentation was so straightforward and simple and it was but yet really effective yeah um and in the audience were like normal not medical people caregivers um people some physicians like a nice smattering of people and then i learned about the change foundation i had never actually heard of the change foundation before so for me to hear about this cool independent think tank for changing policy in ontario that was outside of the government yeah got me very excited <laughs> um because I've, I've watched millions of dollars sometimes be spent on a project that doesn't actually end up helping yeah. people yeah. in a tangible way sure so this looked really you know there were deadlines there were goals there, <laughs> and and it seemed like they were going to be met and and so that also got me wanting to be involved because I figured okay I could dedicate some time and I could actually see some results instead of maybe six years later you right. see that something is coming out of the project you worked on you know five years ago and then the major reason obviously was the content so helping caregivers that really struck a chord with me from those past experiences over sure the years. and I have often felt helpless yeah in the office when when I've done everything I can medically right and I've made all the appropriate referrals to you know to the home care um, the patients on a long-term care wait list um, I've referred to a specialist maybe to back up my thoughts of what the you know diagnosis and treatment plan is right and then it's sort of a waiting game for all those things to come in place and I feel helpless and I don't like doctors don't like feeling helpless sure yeah um so I thought well if this can help me at that stage when I've done everything I'm supposed to do if it can help me somehow make them feel better or make their life better or do something beyond what I'm already doing then it's definitely a worthwhile effort of my time 
you know, I've been in healthcare my whole adult life and I've become a caregiver, you know, recently to my mom and and my dad now. And even if you know where to go or, or who to call or what to do, it's still, there's still so many other things and so many things that pop up and it's still so overwhelming. I, yeah, I don't know how people can navigate the system because I as well, like there was another relative recently who unfortunately passed away and I helped a little bit by going to some oncology appointments and things. And I found the system hard right. to navigate. And and I am a family doctor. Like if anybody in the world should be able to do this, like a family doctor or a, a home care nurse, like someone like that should be able to easily navigate it. But it's not. It, no. It's impossible. You know, I started getting calls from all different people for my mom's care. And every like 10 minutes, my phone was ringing with somebody else calling to schedule an appointment. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know. And I, of course, gave them my number because my mom doesn't hear well, even though she swears she doesn't need hearing aids, you know. I mean, because she polled, I think, three different, um, she went three to three different audiologists, you know. And uh, yeah, and the last one said, well, I don't think you might not need them. I don't know what she heard, honestly. But well, she can't. She can't hear very well. So there right. you go. And so you know, you have to shout with her. So I was like, oh, she's not even going to hear the phone, and my father doesn't answer the phone. He just watches it ring. You know, hears it ring. Well, it's a real. It's a real problem because um, so many of our patients have cognitive problems that you can't call them with the appointment. Right. So then you're trying to reach the the caregiver yep. and they're working and then it's this phone take situation yes. and sometimes it's an appointment that's the next day and so if we can't reach someone by four o'clock we got to cancel the appointment and you know book it for another day because you you know you, you don't know that they've gotten the message and I can imagine because then the people think they have the appointment I'm sure right yeah. exactly <laughs> well you phone, you phone again and you leave a message saying okay sorry sorry this cancel but now we have one for t- for the next day call us back to confirm and then those patients can usually call in like first thing in the morning before they or the caregiver before they go to work or something you know so connecting the dots tell us about the goals and what it it's all about really Yeah, so the Connecting the Dots project was a proposal put together from six organizations around the Huron-Perth community um, when the Change Foundation was originally looking for proposals for projects. So our Connecting the Dots project is a three-phase project, and each step is a co-design format. Now, I had no idea what co-design meant until I showed up to my first (laughs) co-design meeting. Yes, what what does that mean? (laughs) Yeah, so now I know after doing it. Um, So co-design means that the healthcare practitioners and the caregivers in this situation um, are both at the same table in the same room and have equal positions and equal voices. Ah. So we're facilitated by members of the Change Foundation who were part of the Connecting the Dots project. We're facilitated by them. But around the table, there's no Dr. Heiss. It's, you know, we're all even and we all got to take our turns and respect each other. Every co-design meeting started with a little bit of a reminder about that. Now, they did a great job. The steering committee did a great job 
of picking the people for the project because I think they picked people whose egos wouldn't uh, sort of interrupt the flow of right. the project. And right, even on the steering committee, caregivers sat on that steering committee. And this one woman, oh my gosh, she amazes me. She's 91 years old Aww. and she showed up to all these meetings brighter and better dressed than the rest of us. <laughs> and she's so eloquent. And I just, Aww. I was amazed at these people I met through the co-design format. I was yeah. really lucky and honored to be working with them. I was nervous though. I was nervous Aww. about <laughs> being interacting with people who could maybe be my patients and that they might possibly show me a rash, just like we were talking about earlier, <laughs> yeah, right? that someone might corner me at the lunch table <laughs> and just say, hey, I've got this thing on my arm. And, and I really wanted to step outside my family doctor role and be more of a participant, like an equal participant, yeah. not be sort of on duty in terms of clinical diagnosis during these sessions. But it didn't happen. It really, it was good. Everyone was respectful of each other. And you also have this time to talk program. Right. So one of the, so the three co-design um, projects, okay. I was involved mostly with the first one. And that first one, our logo or slogan was time to talk. And it's sort of brilliant, I think. I did not come up with it. I'm not <laughs> tuning my own order. Um, so time to talk really has a dual meaning. And that's why I think it's really smart. Um, so it means that I, as the practitioner, okay. need to make time to talk ah, okay. with my caregivers. Wow. Okay. Okay. But the flip side is that it's time for the caregivers to identify themselves as a caregiver, be proud of that, stand up, tell their story, and ask for help. Ah. You know, it has to be such a, a weight off of caregivers because somebody's listening and, yes. and really listening. Yes. I, so that, for me, is the biggest thing that changed for me so earlier when I was saying I felt helpless now I don't because I've learned through this whole thing and through Pat who I think you've probably seen the video that was linked to this project maybe not but you should watch it if you haven't it's it's amazing um so Pat is a caregiver who tells the story about her husband's stroke in yes. the following sort of six to nine months after that and ongoing obviously um but to know from her that just telling her story to us as the co-design group and as the audiences for these videos is healing and therapeutic. Yeah. And so I never considered that. I didn't consider that in that room, you know, like say for example, I've got, you know, a 60 year old couple and the, and the husband's had a stroke. I didn't think that just by listening to the wife's yeah. story, that that would actually help. So I feel like I almost rushed those patients because I felt helpless and I felt bad. Right. So the longer I'm in there with them, the worse I feel because I have nothing. I can't boost them up on the wait list. It's out of my control how to get, you know, once I've done my referrals and I've pestered and I've pestered, I, I'm, I'm sort of out of options to help anymore for certain issues. But learning that just listing, it really changed my, the way I practice. That's wonderful because I, yeah, I think some physicians don't know what to do. They don't know how to react. And we're going to continue talking with Dr. Erin Heiss. But first, if you're a woman or there's a woman in your life, there's something you absolutely need to know. I want to tell you about my friend Katie. Katie is a nurse and she was attacked on her way home from work. She was totally taken by surprise. And although Katie is only 5 feet tall and 106 pounds, 
she was easily able to drop her six foot four, 250 pound attacker to his knees and get away unharmed. Katie wasn't just lucky that day, she was prepared. In her pocketbook, a harmless looking lipstick, which really contained a powerful man-stopping aerosol propellant. It's not like it was in our grandmother's day. Today, just going to and from work or to the mall can have tragic consequences. The FBI says a violent crime is committed every 15 seconds in the United States, and a forcible rape happens every five minutes. And chances are, when something happens, no one will be around to help. It looks just like a lipstick, so no one will suspect a thing, which is important since experts say getting the jump on your attacker is all about the element of surprise. Inside this innocent-looking lipstick is the same powerful stuff used by police and the military to disarm even the most powerful armed aggressor. In fact, National Park Rangers use the very same formula that's inside this little lipstick to stop 2,000-pound vicious grizzly bears dead in their tracks. It's like carrying a personal bodyguard with you in your purse or your pocket. Darkness brings danger. Muggers and rapists use darkness to their advantage. We all know what it's like to be walking at night and hear footsteps coming at us from behind. Who's there? If it's somebody bad, will you be protected? Your life may depend on it. My friend Katie's close call needs to be a wake-up call for all of us, myself included. Pick up a lipstick bodyguard and keep it with you always. Were you ever young? You're listening to Parents Are Hard To Raise. Now, thanks to you, the number one elder care talk show on planet Earth. Listen to this and other episodes on demand using the iHeartRadio app. iPhone users can listen on Apple Podcasts and Android users on Google Podcasts. Want a great new way to listen to the show? Have an Amazon Echo or Dot? Just say, Alexa, play Parents Are Hard To Raise podcast. Getting the latest episode of Parents Are Hard To Raise. Here it is from iHeartRadio. It's as simple as that. You're right, Dolly. There are so many really cool new ways to listen to our show, it's hard to keep track. You can join the 180 million listeners on Spotify. You can listen in your car, at the gym, or pretty much anywhere on your smartphone with Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. You can get us on Apple TV, DirecTV, Roku. And like Dolly said, you can even ask Alexa to play the show for you. It's great because you don't have to be tied to a radio anymore. You can listen when you want, where you want, for as long as you want. And if you're listening to the show in one of these new ways, please do me a big favor. Share this new technology. Help someone else learn about the show and show them a new way to listen. So, Erin, we were talking about, you know, you as a physician, you do everything you were medically supposed to do. And I was talking to my husband the other night and I said, my gosh, I've been in healthcare, you know, my, my whole adult life. And he's a physician as well. And I can't. I can't navigate, you know, the system. How does a person who isn't involved in healthcare at all know what to do or where to turn? Or, you know, they just sit silently, I think, caregivers, and it's no good for their mental or physical health. No, that's one of the things that came up in our co-design groups when we were talking together, that the caregivers really had this bond forming. Every session you could see it getting stronger because of the information sharing between them. And 
they really wanted to come up with some way that they could share that with other caregivers because I can't answer those nitty gritty details actually of, right. you know, where's, what's the best way to get CCAC or like that's our home care program. Well, okay. It used to be, sorry, now it's Southwest Lynn, but um, what, you know, what are the tips and the tricks? I actually don't know those answers. Right. So one of the, one of the things that has come from the co-design two group, which I wasn't as involved with, but um, is that we have a caregiver group run by caregivers for caregivers so the doctors are cut out of the loop here um <laughs> at the library that's great and, yeah and it's starting to spread so we have people who want so stratford's a town of thirty thousand, and some of the but we have a large catchment for our hospital and so some of the tiny little villages outside they want a program um so they're looking into you know church basements or right. what can they do and who can be the local sort of ambassador caregiver to get that running um because with this project it is a limited time frame so yeah. everything has to be running independently by the time that the entire project wraps up in a year or two um so these startup groups have been so important to help them system navigate um, one of the other projects of co-design too is a binder full of all that information that the caregiver needs to have with them and I've had some positive really positive feedback from um, some of the caregivers that the specialists are like oh this is really good and they start asking them about connecting the dots and like that never happens like, yeah so right like usually you're so rushed you're crunched for time you don't start asking them about a project that they're doing um so we've had some really good response to that um back to the time to talk toolkit so that was the one that i was more involved with okay and the parts of the toolkit are posters so basically on the change foundation website you can find the link to the time to talk toolkit and there are posters that you can download and those posters are to be put up in the waiting room or in the hallways it's very translatable across whether you're a hospital an office you know public health whatever um, and those posters just are trying to catch a caregiver's eye to say are you a caregiver because huh. really that's the first step. If right. you don't know you're a caregiver, you're not going to go to the caregiver group, right? Right, exactly. Um, yeah, so for identification. The toolkit also has in it um, a provider tip sheet, which just is really a reminder to healthcare workers to ask the caregiver how they're doing. Huh. Uh, help them identify themselves and include them as part of the healthcare team. Tell caregivers what's happening and what they can expect next. That was a huge one from our groups. I would imagine, yes. Yeah, they want some idea of what to expect. Right. Um, encourage caregivers to accept help, help connect them to resources, and revisit this conversation throughout the journey, not just sort of, you know, oh, I've done the tip sheet, check, right. I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, then also the toolkit has the video, which I was talking about with Pat's experience. I'm in the video too, but Pat's the star. She is amazing. <laughs> and I seriously think she may go on to have a career in, in, in acting. Um, oh. she, is, she is a wonderful woman. And then there's a really great pamphlet that we came up with. And again, all of this was designed 
with caregivers having equal input to the rest of us about what we should include in it. So again, a section for identification, a section on caregiver burnout, local resources, phone numbers, websites, um, and just encouraging people to take that time to talk with their family, with their friends, with their healthcare practitioners, with everybody. How do you um, try to avoid burnout? What are some of the uh, suggestions you have for caregiver burnout? Do you find that people, you know, it's so hard to ask for help, I think. It is. It is. And I find also that people are so reluctant to accept the help that's offered from friends or neighbors. And I don't know whether it's that they're embarrassed maybe sometimes because something might happen while they're gone that yeah. isn't socially acceptable um yes. or <laughs> yeah yeah with like a dement right with sure. dementia or with a disabled child like because we also had it wasn't just um um people caring for older people within our co-design group it also were some parents caring for disabled children and so i think in a way they're they're nervous that something's going to happen while they're gone that the person can't handle maybe or but if you don't give it a try then that burnout just continues right so accept the offer of help for someone to sit with your loved one for two hours so you can get a haircut and don't feel guilty yeah the the stories and the amazing things like that just broke my heart to hear some of the stories of what people go through um, one of the members of the co-design team was actually my friend. Like I knew her as a hockey mom on my hockey team, but she has a daughter who's 15 with Downs and autism. And she gave me permission to, to talk a bit uh, about her. Um, and I had no idea right. what she struggled with on a daily basis. Uh, and now believe you me, I say, hey, I'm coming over for a couple hours. Right. So like, you need me and you go and I will deal with whatever's going on, you know. Um, people kind of accepts me accepts that now. that's She'll great take my offer I guess you know we kind of suffer in silence and I'm the first one I've always been the first one to say you have to ask for help you know you have to tell people what you need and blah 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 but I don't know I, you know me in the role now I feel like I have to do everything yes it's like uh, tasks and and right. I feel guilty if I don't the guilt is is so hard yeah and you can never you can never be perfect and you can never do it all. Um, so the guilt is such a wasted emotion for everybody, right? Like it, yes. it serves no purpose for anybody. And so I think part of this project is to really inspire the healthcare practitioners to help caregivers recognize who they are, identify right. them, but also to say, what's the one thing today I could do for you to make your life better? Oh. Oh my gosh, I think people would feel so, they probably want to cry hearing a practitioner say that to them. How do you convince your colleagues to use the toolkit or to do this? Yeah, it's a a tough one, right? (laughs) Um, Because we're, you know, we're we're busy, we're running, we've got stress, burnout, government cutbacks, you've got all these things weighing on you. However, when I watched that video of Pat, that was really the moment where I felt in my gut, I went into medicine to help people, and I think most of us did. Sure, yes. Um, And that just really brought it back to me that this woman is suffering. Right. And my job is to help suffering, so I need to also focus on her. And so 
when I felt that, I knew if I could get other physicians to to feel that. Now, the thing is to get them to watch the video. Right. right? When you watch watch the video, I, like, honestly, I cry still every time. And it's been over 30 times I've uh, watched the video. Right, yeah. Um, so if, if they could take the time to watch the video, then they have that feeling. Most of them, honestly, a lot of them have given me that feedback that Pat's story just hits them. Yeah. And then they're they're much more open to using the rest of the toolkit, right? To review sure. the, the tip sheet, to have the pamphlets in their exam room, to support um, the patients to going to our website, because that was one of the further co-design projects. They just released the website, Caregivers, here on Perth.ca, which is really a great resource for a caregiver to go and just kind of click around on the different they've got the videos up there like Pat's story and then they don't they don't feel so alone to see what Pat went through and that she's talking about it right right and and Pat's life is very different so just from being part of this project she says her life is so improved people ask her how she is now they see her they don't just look at her husband right her grandchildren have told her how proud they are of her for looking after their grandpa like that oh I'm getting like tears right now talking about I gotta stop um but it just so I need the physicians and the healthcare practitioners to feel yeah when they feel we do a really good job when we feel and a lot of the times that's almost reserved for for diagnoses of cancer or for things that are that are are end stage right Right. and then we're then our feeling really comes in because otherwise if you feel everything for every cough cold ear you know right you're gonna have compassion fatigue and not be able to feel anything anymore that's right so if you can bring that feeling out again in the physicians then they buy in and they're part of this you guys are doing such remarkable work how do um people find the website could you tell us the website Yes, so for this part of the project, it's caregiversheronperth.ca. And then for the Change Foundation, I don't actually have it in front of me, but if you just Google Change Foundation, I think it's changefoundation.ca. Sorry that I don't have it with me. No, that's fine. We'll have it on, we'll have it on our website as well. Okay. So, Excellent. Dr. Hines, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Oh, parents are hard to raise family. I love getting your emails and questions, so please keep sending them. You can reach me at Diane at ParentsAreHardToRaise.org or just click the green button on our homepage. Parents Are Hard to Raise is a CounterThink Media production. The music used in this broadcast was managed by Cosmo Music, New York, New York. Our New York producer is Joshua Green. Our broadcast engineer is Well Gambino. And from our London studios, the melodic voice of our announcer, Miss Dolly D. We love our parents, but parents sure are hard to raise. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time, may you forget everything you don't want to remember. And remember everything you don't want to forget. See you again next week.